Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a special place to donate to keep this service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Ken. Hi, my name is Ken. I'm an abstaining compulsive overeater. Hi, Ken. And I've always called myself an overachiever with a fork. <laughs> so that's what I did best. <laughs> there are still times when I remember when I used to sit in my car on a dark street eating out of a bag. That was my company, eating out of a bag. Going home saying I could wait for dinner. I don't have to have it yet. I'm not that hungry yet. But I was going to get dinner anyway. I'm an addict when it comes to food. My description of an addict is a person that reaches for something physical in order to solve something emotional or spiritual. I didn't know anything about this in my early days. I was heavy in college. I was heavier when I got married. I was heavy when I was working. I'm a 300-pound man. I don't know the exact number because I only got on normal scales. I go up to 299 and hit zero. And when that would happen, I'd go to a doctor. I took pills for over 30 years. I took the female hormone shots, went to a therapist, went to a hypnotherapist. I took so many pills, I I developed a hepatic liver and ended up in Encino Hospital for a week. And when the doctor asked me, am I taking any medications at all, I lied and said no. Because to me, amphetamines had to do with eating. It was not a medication. So while I was off everything, I came back to normal. I found this program by accident. I walked into a business meeting in 1978 in San Francisco. There was a man there that we used to be binge buddies, having lunches together in New York years before. He had a normal body, a smile on his face. I was annoyed immediately. (laughs) I went over to him and I said, Stan, what happened? And we said hello. And he said, I found a wonderful way to do life. It's called OA, Overeaters Anonymous. I don't want to hear about that. I didn't like the first word. I did not understand the second word. And we talked, and he said, wherever you go, you'll find the meeting. Just look in the white pages. That's all he said. And so I came back from that meeting, a business meeting in San Francisco in February, and I wasn't ready to go because I was going to hold off. I was still going to try other things. Until May, when I said, I have to get this out of my head if I don't try it, I'll always wonder about it. I'll go. I'll make sure it doesn't work, and I won't come back. So I called up the white pages. I got a recording. That was God working in my life for the second time. The first time was meeting Stan after not seeing him for 10 years, not even knowing where he lives now, and never seeing him since then. So God worked my life the second time when I got a recording. If I would have gotten a man or a woman, chances are I wouldn't be here now. I'd hang up. The recording gave me a direction to several meetings. One was on right up Van Nuys Boulevard on Van Owen Street. It was a Wednesday night. I drove over there. I walked in. I saw a room with well over 100 people. I didn't see any nurses or doctors or scales. And so I said, this is impossible. See, I have all the answers. Nobody could teach me anything. But I decided to sit and hear what it was about. And I heard people talking about feelings that I've been dealing with for years. And I couldn't believe, what does that have to do with food or eating? And they had normal-looking bodies. 
And I didn't understand that. And I had a break at that meeting. It was suggested you get a sponsor. I wasn't ready for that. The sponsor would show you how to work the program. The meeting ended about 40 minutes later. I figured I'm going to go back and ask for a sponsor. I'm going to do this the way they tell me to do it. So when it doesn't work, I know I, I will have done it right. But it just won't work. They're not giving me anything to take. And you're right. They don't give us anything for our bodies. We come in here to feed our head. That's where the disease lives, at least for me, between my ears. My body was a reflection of what was going on in my head. So I went back a week later. I could have gone back the next night at a different address, but I said, no, my meeting is now Wednesday in Van Nuys. I have to wait a week. I went back a week later. I looked around the room where they had a sponsor's stand, and I picked out a diminutive, a shorter man than I am with a normal body, I figure I, I can control a person like that. <laughs> I asked him if he'd show me what this is all about. He said, oh, you're looking for a sponsor? I said, yeah, well, if that's what it is. And we talked for several minutes and worked out that I would call him between 7.30 and 8 in the morning. Every morning. The program was a little different in those days. For 21 days, you'd make a commitment to work with a sponsor. And after 21 days, you could fire the sponsor, the sponsor could fire you. But for 21 days, you're going to work out how you contact your sponsor. And I did it every day between 7.30 and 8. And he was very, very clear to me. He said, Ken, this is before we left and went back home. He said, Ken, when you tell me what you're going to eat, make sure if you put it in your mouth, put it in my ear. That's called tough love. He cared about what I was doing, and I had to be honest. I'm, I'm not going to be honest. I'm not going to fool him. I'm going to fool me. That won't work. So I figured, I'm going to do this exactly the way he said. So this is impossible. won't work. And I called him every day, and after three weeks, I was down 12, 15 pounds. So I didn't need you anymore at the meetings or him. I knew what to do. I took a write down what I'm going to eat. Look at this big fat book of 500 some odd pages, which I didn't want to read. It didn't even have any pictures. <laughs> I had it on a bookcase because I was told to buy it. And my weight came back. And so I called him again and I said, I'll tell you what happened. And I told him, he said, well, maybe you're not ready. In other words, he was willing to let me go. He wasn't trying to sell me anything like a doctor would or other people that sell what they have. And I said, no, I'm going to try this again, and we tried it again. I had an abstinence that lasted several months. I had to call him and tell him, I said, what I did on a particular weekend, I broke it, and I had more than three meals, and I ate, and I figured, all he has to say is get lost. That's all. I'm gone. He never said that. He said, do you want to try tomorrow? I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. He said, by the way, do you ever open the big book? And I said, that thing bores me to death. You open it on the first page, it talks about a hundred demoralized people. It puts me to sleep. And he said, then read that page when you have insomnia. I want you to start on page 482. Now, I'm talking about the third edition, because that's what I got when I came in. Nice to use that edition. I said, what's on 482? It's a great way to manhandle someone. If he tells me what's on it, I don't have to read it. And he said, Ken, he knew me. He said, you read it and you tell me what's on it. It deals, it's a short page, it deals with self-honesty. Not being honest 
with a cash register or with you, but being honest with myself. I say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. If I have to make a change, I can call someone and let them know I have to deviate because of whatever happened or went on during the day, but I'm going to make a commitment and learn how to keep a commitment. He then gave me other pages. I didn't come here today to spout pages. But every time I talked about an emotion that I felt, he gave me a page, and it describes that emotion. There are pages in there on anger, on depression, on anger. It's funny. Anger is just depression, you know. Really, depression is really anger without enthusiasm. It's the same thing. (laughs) And I started reading it because people would ask me, you know, what did you read in the big books? Oh, yeah, I read this page. What was on it? I forgot. I always forgot what was on it. I still read the big book because at different times my head's in a different place for when I'm reading the same page I used to read. So I interpret it differently. But it makes sense to me. My sponsor eventually said, Ken, you want to work the steps? I said, do I have to? And he said, no, you don't have to. But trying to succeed in program without working the steps is like learning to swim without getting in the water. (laughs) You have to do it. It's an action program. So I said, what do I do? He gave me this 12 and 12. He said, read step one. Get up at a meeting, any meeting of your choice. I was only going to one. I, did, I thought you'd have to register for another one. And admit you're a compulsive overeater. I've pitched at many meetings, and I've spoken at many meetings, and I don't remember what I say. But I remember the first time I got up in front of that meeting with over 100 people. My hands were wet. My tongue was dry. And I just said, I'm a compulsive overeater. But my life is unmanageable. And I'm powerless over food. And I remember I also said, I only eat on special occasions. When I'm angry, when I'm lonely, when I'm tired, when I'm ill, and one other time, when I'm awake. (laughs) And I sat down. I don't remember any pitch after that. And I was thanked by people for pitching and admitting it. Just like today, I'm thanked by people when I make a call Because something's going on, I might be home alone or whatever. I make a call, I want company, I say, how's your day going? And we talk for a little while, and then they say, oh, Ken, thanks so much for calling. They're thanking me. I called them. I thought for a long time, I don't want to bother someone with my call. And my sponsor said, you're helping someone with your call. I had to do it to understand it. So I started working the steps. The second step was uh, quite simple. It has to do with whether there's a belief in God or not a God. Whether a higher power can do something for me because I couldn't do anything for myself. A doctor couldn't do it. A nurse couldn't do it. A therapist didn't do it. A hypnotist didn't do it. And I came out of a home that practiced the religion one day a week on the weekend. They were very kind and loving to each other. The rest of the week they talked behind each other's back, yelled, shouted, whatever. And this was religion? I left my home without religion. I didn't want a religion. I didn't come here for one, and I don't have one here. I have a spiritual program. I've come here because it works. I get something here. I can't get out there where all those terminally normal people live. So I I said, yes, I I do believe 
that if there is a power that's greater than myself, it might work. It might help me. I said, might. And I had to go into the third step. That's the tough one. And this is my exit from program. I sat down with my sponsor. He said, uh, Ken, how are you doing with the steps? I said, you have to tell me, how am I supposed to find God? And as soon as he told me some kind of gibberish that I didn't want to believe, I'd be gone, even though my weight was going down. And he said, Ken, you're not supposed to find God. You're supposed to look for God. And you look for God when you go to a meeting, when you pick up the phone, when you pick up the big book or the 12 and 12, when you call someone, or the phone rings and someone's calling you. And all you have to do is listen. This is how we look for God. And you can't find anything you don't look for. And I happen to agree with that. Yeah, I'm going to look for God. And he said, get to another meeting besides this one. Try one on Saturday and Monday and Friday. Get other people in your life. And again, I was willing to try this because I was sure it wouldn't work. See, I told him, you don't know me, Neil. I have a lot of flaws. And he said, Ken, a person without flaws is not real. And that stopped me cold. We're not. I never met a perfect person. I thought I was. But I'm not. And I don't know any. So I went to other meetings. I followed directions. In ni- That was in 1978. In 1981, it got tough. I ended a job here and moved to Phoenix. My family was living here uh, until we sold our home. And I was in Phoenix working. And while I'm there... Our house sells. So now my wife and family are going to come to Phoenix and join me. I was going to nine meetings a week. I didn't nobody there except the people I worked with. I went Monday through Sunday, one meeting a day, and on Saturday morning and Sunday afternoon. Nine meetings a week. The man I was working for eventually died. And it was a radio station. The radio station was not going to be and I had to come back home. And I did not have any work, and I did not have any home. It was sold. And I had a wife and two kids, one in college, one on her way, and I didn't know that God would do this to me. You know what it was? It's a test. We find something, or I find something I can't handle. It's a test. And someone is always asking, God saved you from that? And I said, no, God didn't save me. I look for God to direct me. God can't save me because I make choices. Every one of you can make choices. The most powerful thing we have is making a choice. We could say yes or no, turn left or right, sit down or stand up, whatever you want to do. And then you live with the result of that choice. But if I look for God, for direction a place I never looked before, it slows me down. I don't have to act on my first thought. The first thought usually is involved with anger or because I'm depressed or not getting my way. And I have to sit back and say, wait a minute, don't let that come out of your mouth. I'm going to have to make another amend. I don't like to make amends. I work through the steps. I've made amends. I still have to make amends when I make a mistake. I make mistakes because I'm human, but I'm not the person I used to be. My weight's in the 180, 185 range. I always wanted to know what my weight should be. 
I went to a doctor, I had a physical once, and I asked him, I said, you know, you've known me when I was very heavy, you've known me now, what should my weight be? And he said, Ken, for your age and your build and your size, whatever, about 170, 190. I said, no, 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 I want a number. (laughs) And he said, people don't have a number. They have a range. In the summer, when you're more active, your weight dips down a few pounds. In the winter, when it gets dark at 4.30 and you're more sedentary, your weight goes up a few pounds. He said, only a statue has a weight that never changes. (laughs) I agree. And I also agreed that I don't want to be a statue. Because you know what birds do to them. (laughs) So I have a range. It's 180, 185. And sometimes it does. It jumps up over 180, close to 184, 185. Sometimes it goes down to 179. And I, I smile all the time. I say, boy, oh boy, you're trying to con- rule my life. And it can't. It's just the scale on a wheel. It doesn't even know me. I can't give it the power. If I give somebody or something the power to rule me, I'm finished. I can only look for hanging out with the right people. I have a lot of friends in program. I have very few outside of program, though I do have some. They don't understand. Someone asked me once, what do you mean you're a compulsive reader? I said, I'm not going to have anything to eat until dinner. And I said, I said well, uh, remember, I'm talking to a normal person. I said, I made a commitment I'm not going to eat this afternoon until dinner. He said, why? I said, I'm a compulsive overeater. And he said, what is that? I said, well, I, I used to eat something to make me feel better, but it made me feel worse, but I couldn't stop doing it. And he looked at me and he said, oh, and walked away. (laughs) I'm very happy with that. He doesn't have to understand me. The people in these rooms understand me. And when you stand up and say something, I understand what you're saying and what you're feeling. Because we have a common bond. That's why we all come down on a beautifully sunny Saturday afternoon at 5.30 to listen to something the terminally normal people out there don't know what we're talking about. So I've worked through the steps. I've taken part in my own life. I've made my amends. And I still work the steps. I still may have a character defect that is trying to rise to the surface. And I have to identify it, six, and get rid of it, seven. That's what I have to do. That's my job. If I want to live with it, I'm starting to slide. And if I start to slide, I'm in trouble again. I don't want to go back to pills or shots or any of that business. I like my life today. I never thought I'd get up in the morning and the first thing I do before my feet hit the floor, I read for today. Every day. I've been reading it for about 15 years and I still don't have it memorized. But I read it every day. It gives me a message of sanity that I could take out of my bed to start the day going instead of taking this out of my head out of bed and start listening to that. I have people that call me a sponsor. There are people that I call a sponsor. My original sponsor moved away. I don't know whatever happened to him. The second one in Phoenix is, uh, I don't believe he's alive any longer. He'd be close to 90. And so I have people that sponsor me. And sometimes those people are the same ones I sponsor because we talk the same language. We know what we're talking about. So I still show up. I still take part because it's good for me. 
And that's all I could say about program. It works. If someone wants to sell me a diet, I, I, I won't argue. I'll say, if it works for you, more power to you. You found a therapist works for you, more power to you. And they ask me why I won't try it. I don't need it. Why don't I need it? I have a place to go. They, they immediately stop talking about it because they don't understand. It's not their fault. It's their condition. Like, eating was not my fault. That was my condition. That's what I used to do. Many years ago, two drunks stood up, put this fellowship together, Dr. Bob and Bill W., and it took about two years to put the big book together. And while they were doing that, I remember the story that someone came up to Dr. Bob. He was an actual doctor. And asked him, what, what do you do at these meetings where there are drunks and they stop drinking? And how does that work? And he figured, I'm going to talk to a normal person. How would they understand about steps, about a higher power? So he took his prescription pad. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a prescription on the pad, and he signed it, Dr. Bob. And he wrote, one, two, three. One, trust God. Two, clean house. And three, do for others. And that's the whole 12 steps in the whole program in three little words. One, two, three. I tell you about that particular prescription because many years later, about 40, I got hold of a copy of that prescription. I still have it, and I send it out to friends who want it, with a signature on it. I've sent out many, many copies. If you want one, just give me your address. I'll send you one. The whole point is, that's, again, talking a language that the people out there don't understand. They just don't get it. When I'm sitting down and having a dinner and someone's offering me more food, I'll say, that looks great, but I'll pass. Or, not now. And they try to sell it. People love to sell food. I never had a problem saying no when I'm with a bunch of people. I had a problem at work. Years ago, less than 10 years ago, I had worked with a company that had a thing at 3 o'clock. They would celebrate anybody's birthday, anniversary, a woman that just conceived, any reason for having a cake, they would have a cake at 3 o'clock and serve coffee and tea. And so at 3 o'clock, I would walk in, and I'd always say, you know, I had tea, and I'll pass on that. And they say, oh, you don't know what you're missing. I say, oh, I do. And they say, oh, you don't. And no argument, fine. That was never a problem. I could turn every one of them down. My problem was, at 3.20, when the lights were out in that room, and everyone went back to their office, and I went back to mine. I wanted to go back down that hall. Because I could take a piece of whatever I want in the dark, and it never happened. Nobody would see me. I didn't need to cut it with a knife. I'd take it with my hand. And so, at my desk, I pick up the phone and call someone. A lot of times I get a recording, and I leave a message and tell them what's going on. Uh, not all the detail, just that I'm in my office... Uh, I'll be here for another hour and a half, and outside of getting up from my desk to go to the restroom or the door to go home, I'm not getting up, or I'll call you back. I would tell that to someone, or put it on the recorder. Once someone asked me, once I got a weird message from you, and I told them what it was. 
I said, I didn't want to get up, walk down the hall and do something in the dark where I'd be invisible. And that's exactly what I thought I was if I would eat in the dark. I've come to believe that there's a power greater than myself that restored me to the sanity of a normal person, but with a far greater knowledge of how to take care of myself. Because there are a lot of terminally normal people that still don't know how to take care of themselves and wallow in pity and anger and all kinds of feelings and use other things. And I say, thank God. I didn't use other things. I wouldn't be here. The ultimate, or the last story I'd like to share with you is something that happened to me in uh, 2003. I went out to a meeting in Burbank. I drove alone on the freeway at 7 in the morning. Went to the meeting, sat through the meeting. It's a very good meeting, by the way, 7.30 to 8.30. Then I had coffee with someone, got back on the freeway alone, drove home. Picked up my wife, killed about a half hour. We went out to have lunch, sat down at the table, and I fell over with a cardiac arrest. That's not a heart attack. Cardiac arrest is your heart completely stops beating. You have five minutes to be resuscitated or you're gone. My wife told me she screamed. Someone knew CPR. They gave me CPR. The ambulance came. They resuscitated me with shocks. The next 24 hours, I didn't know this, I was out. I had to be resuscitated two more times, and that happened on Saturday afternoon. I woke up on Sunday afternoon, eight days later. I lost a week of my life. And I woke up and I saw, I had tubes in my arm, I'm laying in a bed, it's not my bedroom, and I just ordered lunch. That was the last thing I remember. <laughs> and the nurse called my wife and must have said he's awake and came in. Eventually the doctor came in. And this is the point of the story. I told the doctor, you know, I used to be over 300 pounds. And thank God, now that I'm well, my, my weight is in good shape. I didn't think this would happen. He said, it's a good thing you kept your weight off because CPR doesn't work on 300 pound people. So that shocked me. What am I supposed to thank the doctor? I said, thank you, God. Because that's where I kept my weight off, by trusting God. And it was like my doing with God's help. I truly believe that. I was very nervous about that. I had trouble sleeping. I said, God, can this, I mean, God, the doctor, could this happen again? He said it could. I said, what makes it happen? He said, I don't know. I said, well, well, tell me, I mean, how should I live? He says, just go out there and do do normal life. Just don't pick up very heavy things. And so since 2003, September, I've been living and enjoying it. And nothing has happened to me. Why did it happen that day? And I ask myself sometimes, why didn't it happen when I was driving alone on the freeway that morning? Or on the way back at 10 o'clock in the morning. It didn't happen then. It happened when I was in the presence of my wife and in the presence of a person who could give CPR. I tried to find this man. We went back to the restaurant. If anyone knew who he was, nobody knows who he was. He's in and out of my life. The five minutes that I needed him, I had him. This, This is something working in my life that you can't buy from a doctor or a psychotherapist or a hypnotist. 
So I've come to believe I found something that works and I'm going to stick it out. You know how long? Till I go to bed tonight. (laughs) Because if I make long-range plans, they will include some off-the-wall thing that I don't want to get involved in. So I have learned to live a day at a time. I never knew I could do that. You know, the the old adage, you hear it in program a lot, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is the present, today, that's where we live. I can't make choices about next week, unless it's a business choice with an appointment or a vacation that we're setting up. I cannot make personal choices about what I'm going to do a week from today. I have a calendar, I fill it up, I have a little book on my wallet, it's filled with a lot of names and addresses and phone numbers out of about 2025, 20, and I use them. And when I travel, and I'm in a place I would never want to eat, at some hotel, sitting at a pool with everyone stuffing themselves or picking up food with their hands, I take out a couple postcards and I write them to my friend. And said, I had lunch about an hour ago while everyone else is eating, I thought I'd say hello. And I write him a card. And you know what? I get paid back. Two, three weeks later, they thank me for sending them the card. It's called going to any length. I need to go to any length. Because once my head takes over, I'm doomed. I believe that. I'll have exactly what I had. Someone said something to me that's very hard to remember. If I always do what I always did, I'll always get what I always got. And it's true. I can't go back to old habits. They didn't work. They just didn't work. So I come to a place that's entirely free. I come to a place where I have more friends than I've ever had in my life before. I was at a meeting this morning. My home meeting is Saturday from 10 to 11.30. It's called Spiritual Maintainers. There are about eight of us that have been around at that meeting since 1982. That's something I've never done before. I never didn't do anything for 27 minutes, much less 27 years. And it's a meeting where a person speaks, we pitch, and we go back to life out there. And I can't believe I saw people this morning I've known for over 20 years. And I didn't go to high school or college with them. They're not related. They're friends. The most important beings are friends. Because we get to choose each other. That doesn't work with relatives. Relatives are given to us. I still have them coming out from the east. I call them aliens. They come out here. (laughs) And they immediately tell me what's good for me and what I should do. And I I look them right in the eye and I smile. I say, that sounds terrific. That really sounds terrific. And once in a while, weeks later, a month later, sometimes a year later, did you ever try what I told you? I said, no. (laughs) And they usually let go at that point. I'm not interested in being sold. Because what I found is free. I don't have to pay for it. I'm going to leave you with a... uh, I pick up these sayings that have to do with program, and they're always said by people that had nothing to do with program. And this one was uh, said by a philosopher by the name of George Santayana. He said it many years ago. There's no cure for birth or death except to enjoy the interval. Thank you very much for being here.
the floor open for questions. Yeah. Yes. Can you tell us a little more about how your um, sense of spirituality has developed? It evolved from really realizing that I've tried everything else that's physical that didn't work more than 10 minutes or 10 days. And that I, I started learning about a spirituality because I wanted to prove it wouldn't work. I did not believe there was a God that would take care of me or that could direct me or to help me make decisions. I really did. And this place said I would find that kind of a strength here. So I stuck it out to prove they're wrong. I was a very negative person. And I couldn't prove it. Because I was getting better. Not only the body, but my head. I was making better decisions. Decisions I would never have made before without hurting somebody with my tongue, without avoiding people I didn't want to see. I can now see people in a mixed group and stay away from the ones that aren't good for me. And this is what spirituality is. It's getting to a point in life where you're doing something that you haven't purchased and you haven't been given it by another person. You found it yourself. I have to believe I found all these things myself. And that's how it started. And it's slow. And I like that. The slower is better. I don't like fast forward. I always tell people I sponsor, slow forward. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, um, one of the first ones to have, to have a happy morning thing. Um, you said it's not a false condition. Can you explain that again? It's not a what? It's not a fault. Oh, yes. I grew up in a home where my mother told me that if I continue to eat all the time, taking food out of the pantry and everything else, she knew I was doing it. I was an only child. She made me feel guilty. And I liked myself less for feeling guilty. And when I came here, I found out I was told... I'm not guilty. That was my condition. I reached for food. Thank God I didn't reach for booze or drugs and other stuff. I reached for food. And I learned in these rooms it was a condition that I had, not a fault. And so guilt comes from doing something wrong that I know is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway, even if it hurts you or them or whatever. I'm going to do it. I'm guilty of that but not food. Thank you so much. Um, you talked about character defects still continuing to come to the surface. Um, can you comment on today, how you do like a 6-7, and if at all that plays into a step 11? Fortunately, step 4, which is a, a leap of faith in t- between two wide set-apart buildings, a leap of faith, helps us clean up the past, but we can't do it perfectly, so we have step 10 in the future. When I'm somewhere and we're talking and something happens and all of a sudden I say, I don't want to hear that crap or something comes out of my mouth, even worse than that, to someone I'm talking to, and I know that's not what I want to go home with. That's one of my defects of character, getting the thought and having it come out my mouth. 
So I have to write down on a piece of paper. I was told, write down what happened. Write down. I could write it in a couple words. I don't need a paragraph. I talk back to someone disrespectfully. Then I have to go home. I have to call someone and tell them what I did. And tell them I'm going to try not to do that again. I'm going to try. That's the six and the seven. I admit I do have character defects. A lot of them have fallen away. And that's a miracle. Just like certain foods have fallen away. I I haven't talked to you about food. I have a black and white abstinence with no meat, no sugar, and no bread. I eat everything else on a plate. When the plate's empty, I'm done. And so six and seven is having to do it with another person in program, talking to them, admitting, I did something I don't want to live with. So I'm going to pass it on. And I go from there. I mean, I'm a compulsive reader. You know, men like to look in the centerfold of a magazine. And my favorite centerfold would be a loaf of warm rye bread. (laughs) And normal people don't laugh at that. They don't even know what I'm talking about. They really don't know. So I utilize six and seven when I need to. I hope not to use it often. I hope I don't have to use it often. Anyone else? That's good. I don't have all the answers anyway. I thank you very much for your patience and for taking part. I cannot do this alone. And I'm very glad you're here. Thank you very much.